Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want, to I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I just want to start with this question. Do you want to change? Do you really, I mean, really, do you really want to change? You want to change your life? And the second question that goes along with that one. Are you tired of trying to change or frustrated by what you think is a lack of change? I suspect that if you've been seeking to follow Jesus for any time at all, you have some level of frustration at what you consider to be a lack of change that you see in your own life. I mean, I don't know how many times I've prayed something like, Father, please forgive me. Please set me free from this or that. And then I've rejoiced in my forgiveness, but change seems really slow, really slow in coming. Have you despaired of changing? Maybe you're despairing of ever changing right now. I'm not asking if you're despairing that your spouse is going to change. I know you're doing that. I'm asking if you're despairing if you're going to ever change. Do you think you're a lost cause? You know, this is a time of year where change is all the rage. Christy just mentioned her New Year's resolutions. I, I didn't do any New Year's resolutions this year, to be honest with you, uh, because I stink at them. Um, I didn't do any New Year's resolutions because, I mean, could anything be more cliche? That's my way of thinking. I don't want to do any, but actually I don't do any because, you know, I always fail at it. I always fail. I have a 100% failure rate, I'm pretty certain, at keeping New Year's resolutions. Why? Why are we so frustrated by our own lack of changing. 
Why when we are faithful in reading the Scriptures and we see what it's supposed to be to live as a Christian and then we look at our lives we think, wow, I'm nowhere close to that. Why do we still struggle with the same things over and over again? Here's why. We lack the power. We lack the power for change. Buying a Peloton cannot really change you. Um, Why? We lack the power. There's nothing that we have in our own reserves There's nothing that we can purchase or earn that's going to produce lasting change in us. And here's why I mention all of this. The letter of Romans will change you. Um, The letter of Romans actually will change you. Romans will change you this year if you stick with it and if you listen and if you ask the Holy Spirit to make these truths real to you. The message of Romans is that the gospel has the power to change us. And the gospel will change us if we believe it. It's a book that speaks to our deepest needs. It understands us, Romans does. And Romans has changed people for thousands of years. Romans has changed all kinds of immoral and irreligious people. There was a man in the 4th and 5th centuries named Augustine who was a brilliant young student of philosophy in the late Roman Empire and trained under under some of the most amazing teachers in that day and lived in some of the coolest cities in the Roman Empire and was a complete mess. He loved um, sex. He loved to drink too much. He loved to go out and party with his friends. He was a disaster, frankly, but his mother prayed for him every day. Augustine never found what he was looking for in all of his uh, immorality and partying. And one day he found himself walking through a garden in the city of Rome and he heard little children playing next to him in the park. And these children were singing a song. And the song uh, had a refrain like that went like this, tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read. Take up and read. And so he picked up the first Bible he found and opened it randomly. To Romans chapter 13 and read this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That began what's really a radical change in the life of Augustine so that he's probably the most influential Christian in the history of the world that wasn't an apostle. Romans changes immoral people. Romans also changes extremely religious, moral people. There was another man in the 18th century named John Wesley, who when he was in college with his brother Charles, by the way, Charles wrote like every hymn you know. All the hymns, Charles Wesley. Uh, John and Charles were in college together at Oxford and they started this club uh, and it was called the Holiness Club. And what the holiness club would do was get together and hang out and just get wasted. No, they didn't do that at all. Um, They would talk about how holy they were and they would pry into each other's lives and they would ask questions to make sure they were being diligent enough in seeking to obey what the Bible teaches. Can you imagine, by the way, being a student at Oxford and being there the first week and you see all the tables and the clubs and you walk up to this table and you say, hey, what's your club? And they say, the holiness club. Would you like to join? I'm going to find the Spanish club. How about that? Um, John and Charles Wesley were extremely moral. Um, He became an Anglican pastor 
and went on a mission trip in which he took a ship across the Atlantic Ocean in his early 20s, and a great storm came. And for a while, they thought the ship was going to crash and and sink. And John Wesley saw all these other Christians on the ship praying and singing, seemingly at peace in their hearts. And he realized that he envied them. He envied them, and he wondered why he couldn't do that. He had no peace in his life at the thought of actually meeting Jesus, and he was a pastor. He was in ministry. And so he got back to London, and one day he was taking a walk, much like Augustine had 1,500 years earlier, and he happened to walk by this chapel called Aldersgate Chapel in London, where he heard through the open window a priest reading Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans out loud. And he walked in and heard the gospel for the first time, and it changed him and really changed two continents. This book changes irreligious, immoral people. It changes really, really religious holiness club people. This book has changed me. I remember like it was yesterday, the summer in between my first and second years of college, sitting in my father's study, reading Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And for the first time, a light illuminating me. For the first time, feeling, even though I had been around church my whole life, for lack of a better way to describe it, a warmth overcome me at the thought of grace. Romans will change you. That's why we're studying it for the next few months together. Romans was written by uh, Paul, the apostle. It was written on his third missionary journey in about 57 AD. He was in the city of Corinth when he wrote Romans. And Romans is unique among all of the letters of the New Testament. It's unique in that it's the only letter that Paul writes to a church that he had never visited. You notice that in the letter, in the beginning of the letter, in what Dan read. He'd never been to Rome. He didn't plant this church. He longed to go there, but at the time of writing, he had not yet visited Rome. And so because of that, Romans doesn't deal with the sort of specific issues pastorally that some of the other letters of Paul deal with, like 1 Corinthians or Colossians or Galatians. Romans is more general. Paul's writing writing Romans to, to introduce himself and his message, to introduce himself and his message to the church there and to tell them that he longs to come and visit them on his way to Spain, where he hoped to go and complete his missionary journeys. The church in Rome likely was about 100 to 200 people, not too different from the size of our church now. It was mainly Gentile in its makeup, and the reason is because a few years before the church started, the emperor Claudius had exiled all of the Jews from the city because he blamed them for some of the problems in town. And so Gentile leadership had to rise up in the Roman church. So the Roman church is a young, fledgling church hoping to make it in the capital city of the world at the time. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them. And it's widely regarded as Paul's masterpiece. Um, I'm not supposed to do this, but it's probably one of the two or three most important books in the Bible. Every book in the Bible is important. Romans is really, really, really important. It's probably number one. Um, The Gospel of John, maybe. It's one of those two, in my opinion. Um, so today I want to introduce you to Romans. Uh, I want to introduce you to its themes just for a few minutes together as we study these opening verses and these verses introduce us to Paul's message, uh, to the message of Christianity, really, uh, to the message that can and will change you to the message that can and will change you. It's the message of the gospel. 
So let's break this text down uh, like this. We're going to see the content of the gospel and the power of the gospel. There's no way I can cover all these verses, so I'm not even going to try. We're just going to focus on the content of the gospel and the power of the gospel. So if you'll look there, when Paul introduces himself in verse 1, which is what ancient letters were like, he gives us a really long introduction. Uh, The opening of the letter is longer even than for Paul normally, and the likely reason is that he hasn't yet met these Roman Christians, and he wants to give an, an extensive introduction. But of course, as was his custom, Paul diverts from talking about himself uh, to talking about God and to talking about God's gospel. He tells the Romans three things about himself, that he's a servant, really a slave. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He's set apart for the gospel of God, and he's called to be an apostle. That is a messenger who brings and delivers good news. He says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God, and then he tells us what the gospel is right here at the very beginning. He gives us the content of the gospel. Um, We're going to be working this out in the next few months together, but it's neatly and nicely packaged up right here in the opening verses. Let's notice five things real quickly about the content of the gospel. Five points. First, Paul says it is God's gospel. He says he's set apart for the gospel of who? God, the gospel of God. This means that Paul, nor any other apostle, invented this message. No human invented this news. Rather, this gospel, this good news, was entrusted to them by God. It was planned by God. It was carried out and executed by God. And now the message is revealed to witnesses by God. God is the source of the gospel. He's the origin of the gospel. Second, It was attested in the Old Testament. Verse 2, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel is not, in Paul's day, something completely new, something completely unexpected. Rather, Paul says it's what the entire Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, the entire Bible at the time, pointed to. It's what the Bible was about. Paul says that if you read any story or any prophecy or any poem anywhere in the Bible and you don't interpret it through the lens of the gospel, then you've misinterpreted it. All of the Bible, all of the Old Testament is pointing us to the gospel, the good news of God. That's what Jesus also is teaching in the gospel of Luke after he's been raised from the dead. He's talking to his disciples about the scriptures and he says in Luke 24, Everything written about me, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole Old Testament, must be fulfilled. What's written about me? Well, Jesus tells them. He says, here's what's written in the Old Testament, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So it's God's gospel. It's attested in the Old Testament. Third, Its substance is concerning God's Son, verse 3. The gospel is a message about what has happened to Jesus, who is the Son of God. So what about him? Fourth, the Son of God became a man, verse 3, concerning his Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Let me try and summarize. The good news of Christianity is that God has planned to send his son, who is also fully God, 
into the world at a specific time and place to a specific people. He promised to do this in the Old Testament. So Jesus is born as a baby from a virgin mother, a a girl named Mary, in the line of King David around 4 AD in a remote province in the Roman Empire called Palestine as a Jewish person, a descendant of Abraham, to whom God had made all kinds of promises thousands of years prior. Fifth, Jesus died, was raised again from the dead by the Holy Spirit, and is now the Lord of the universe. Verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus lived a life of obedience to God. He performed miracles and wonders, and he taught with authority. And the Romans and the Jews conspired together to murder him via crucifixion. And he was dead and he was buried. And after three days, he rose again to life from the dead, as he had said he would. And his resurrection defeats death forever. And because of his resurrection, Paul says that Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God in power. Jesus Christ is the Lord. In other words, the resurrection was a turning point for Jesus. He's always been the Son of God. But after the resurrection, he's the Son of God in power no longer in weakness. He's the son of God in glory and not in suffering. And he reigns right now over all things as king and Lord of your life, of my life, of all life. So that's a summary. That's a summary in Romans 1, 2 through 4 of the content of the gospel, of the message of Christianity. So stop with me and think. I want to pause right here. A lot of content right there. I want you to pause with me and consider this. What the Christian faith claims, what the Christian faith claims is unique for a lot of reasons, but it's unique among all religions. Here's how. Here's what it claims. Real and lasting change, the kind of stuff that I opened with, forgiveness, salvation, enlightenment, hope, whatever you want to call it, real and lasting change happens When one hears and trusts in a message. Real and lasting change happens when one hears and trusts in news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not rules for better living. And that makes Christianity unique. Virtually every other religion Every other way of life tells us that change happens when we follow their advice or obey their rules or submit to their path. Think of some examples with me. Uh, In Buddhism, salvation comes when we follow the fourfold path and we're able to disengage from our wants or desires and learn that suffering is just an illusion. Salvation and enlightenment come when we follow these practices, when we do the advice of Buddhists. In Islam, salvation comes when you follow the five pillars of Islam. Daily prayers, a trip to Mecca, um, reciting the creed, almsgiving, and fasting during Ramadan. Hinduism says that change or salvation or enlightenment comes when you avoid karma by finding a right way of living and realizing the hidden unity of all things through achieving nirvana. I could go on and on and on. Think about it this way. Even apart from official world religions, um, 
we all by nature believe that the way to salvation, we all by nature believe that the way to change is to do something differently. Is to do something differently or to get the right advice and follow it better. I mean, in my life, just as an example, when my wife uh, lovingly tells me that I've said or done something recently that's hurt her or hurt the children, and she talks to me about it, I'll often actually say out loud, you can ask Marianne, but I almost always internally think, well, what can I do differently? Right? Am I unique here? I don't think I am. What can I do differently? And that speaks to our inner mindset, to the way we're all wired. If we only had the right information, if we only got some good advice, if we only had counsel and could follow it, then change what happened. Christianity says no. No, 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 no. Christianity is radically different. Romans says that real change, real salvation, real forgiveness, real enlightenment comes by hearing and trusting in a message. By receiving good news about what has happened to Jesus of Nazareth, not by doing our best to follow some good advice, whether it be from ourselves or some religious guru or some self-help book. And I want you to just see at the outset how remarkably freeing, how remarkably freeing that can be. Change happens by hearing news about something that's happened to Jesus and believing it. So how does that work? Well, we've seen the content of the gospel. Secondly, let me show you um, the power, the power of the gospel. So Paul goes on uh, and he tells the Romans how he's longed to visit them. He regularly prays for them, verses 8 through 13. He wants to come visit them, but he's under obligation, he says, verse 14, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what he's getting at there in 14 and, and 15. He's eager to preach the gospel to everyone, especially to the Romans. And then he gives the theme of the entire letter. Verse 16, I'm really under obligation and eager to preach the gospel to everyone, but especially to you who are in Rome. Why? Why am I so eager to preach the gospel? Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Why aren't you ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul says here that this message, this content that we just saw summarized in verses 2, 3, and 4, is power. The message is power from God unto salvation. And because it has power, he's not ashamed of it. Okay, three questions about this idea, and then we're going to be done. Okay, three questions. Question one, why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Question two, salvation from what? Question three, how exactly is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Okay, question one, why would Paul say he's unashamed of the gospel? Isn't that a little bit of an odd thing to say? I'm, I'm guessing that he must feel the need to say that he's not ashamed because he and the Romans from time to time feel tempted to be ashamed. He feels the need to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's reasonable to assume that he and other believers might feel ashamed of the gospel. A couple of months ago, I was at a family event and uh, my brothers and I were hanging out with some cousins and the event was over and we were spending some time together and right next door to where we were, there was a karaoke bar. And I thought, we should do some karaoke. And I said to Andrew and Robert, our brothers, hey, let's go to the karaoke bar, let's sing. 
And they looked at me like, seriously. And I said, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. I, I know you don't want to. And then one of my brothers piped up and he said, I'm not ashamed of your singing, Luke. <laughs> Interestingly that he didn't say, I'm proud of your singing. He said, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed by your singing. And we destroyed Amarillo by morning, by the way. Side note. Um, that's, that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, I'm proud. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's a weird thing to say. But you know what? I'm glad he says it. I'm glad. Why would Paul be ashamed of the gospel? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But I think one big one is found in what we were just discussing. The fact that the gospel is good news and not good advice. Follow with me. The message of the gospel is that salvation, change, hope, peace, life is completely dependent upon God's activity for us in Jesus Christ. That our change is dependent upon the work of God for us and not our own work. When you think about that, that's really insulting. It's insulting because the gospel tells us, uh, in telling us that our salvation is not something we can earn by following good advice or by being really religious and moral, but it's something that we must receive as a gift is crushing our inherent pride. And so we might not like it. We might be ashamed of it. Something we wouldn't naturally be ashamed of is saying, I'm really proud of what I've accomplished. Follow me. But the gospel's not like that. The gospel actually requires us to say, I've accomplished nothing except put myself in God's debt. I've accomplished nothing except run away from God. The gospel tells us that we're such spiritual failures that the only way to salvation is for it to be a complete gift. And that offends decent, moral folks like you and like me who naturally believe that our very decency and morality give us a leg up over other less moral people. So Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. That begs the question, though, salvation from what? Salvation from what? Well, salvation from the power of sin. Romans is going to explore this in depth. But Paul's saying that only the gospel, only this news about what's happened to Jesus can free you and me from the bondage and the slavery that we're all naturally under to sin our master. Knowing that the Lord of the universe loves us and died for us, restores us and takes us out of shame and guilt and the power of evil. So Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because when the gospel is received, it is the power of God to rescue us, to save us from sin's guilt and curse. That leads to the third question, last question. In what way is the power of God, or excuse me, in what way is the gospel the power of God for salvation from the power of sin? That's the question Paul answers in the rest of the book. But let's see how he summarizes it for now, and then we'll be finished. Look at verse 17. He says, it's the power of God for salvation. Here's why. For, here's the reason, in it, in the gospel's message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, what does that mean? That word righteousness, that word righteousness, as you might imagine, means a, a right standing, a right status. It's a, a legal term. The phrase righteousness of God here then means 
that the right standing, the right status that we all need to be right with God, to be okay with God, to be connected to God is given to us by God. The righteousness of God is God's granting. It's God's giving right standing to people who have not earned it, but who receive it by faith. Let me summarize. The gospel is that God became a man in Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. He died on a cross for sin. He was raised from the dead and is now Lord of all. And that activity of God in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the means by which God gives his own righteousness, his own right standing, his own perfection before the judgment seat to anyone, to anyone who believes the message, whether Jew or Gentile. The gospel is that God gives you everything that Jesus earned so that when God looks at you, he sees you in exactly the same way he sees Jesus. We don't naturally possess the righteousness of God. That's Jesus who does. We're given the righteousness of God for free as a gift. Paul's saying that anyone who believes in that message, in the reality of the here and now, receives God's righteousness. The righteousness which we need for salvation is given away by God for free. A number of years ago, um, I think I've told, Marianne told me I've told this story before. Sorry. Telling you again. A number of years ago, early in our marriage, uh, I got a piece of uh, a piece of mail that I was super excited about. It was one of those big, you know, big uh, <clears throat> envelopes. And on the front, it said, you've won a free cruise. I was thrilled. I opened the letter and I read it. You've won a free cruise. Beautiful picture of the ship and the Caribbean and the Bahamas and palm trees. Everything I want. And I read the fine print and I reread the letter. And I stuck the letter on the refrigerator and I stared at it. And then I reread it again. And then I called Marianne and I said, we've won a free trip. We've won a cruise. And she said, let me get home from work first. And so she came home from work and I was like, look at this letter. We have won. She's like, did you read the fine print? Yes, I've read the fine print. We won. It's a scam, honey, she says. It's a scam. It is not a scam. We've won a free cruise. All I have to do is call this number and give them my credit card information for some reason. But I have to call this number. That's all. Have you called the number? Well, no, I wanted to wait until you get home so I could share this joy with you that we've won a free cruise. It was a scam. <laughs> we hadn't won a free cruise. Um, and I've been suckered multiple times, amazingly, into, into free cruises. And I hate to say it, it's, it's made me a little bit dubious of that kind of mail. It's made me dubious of the so-called free lunch. Of It's made me dubious of a gift given at no cost. I'm always thinking, what's the catch? What's in the fine prints? And, and really, we're all dubious of that. That's why the gospel is so hard. <laughs> It's so easy and yet it's so hard. It says that you get a gift at no cost and there's no catch. The key to unlocking the power and the freedom of the gospel is in seeing it in just that way as a free gift given to us by a loving God. So I want to remind you of, of how we opened as we close. Do you want to change? 
Another way, really, of asking the same question is this. Have you experienced the power of the gospel? Have you experienced the power of the gospel? Is it something that for you is alive and pulsing with power? I'm not asking you if you've heard the message. I'm not asking you if you've assented to it intellectually. I'm also not asking you if you've studied it or mastered it in school. I'm asking you if you've experienced its power. The power of God for salvation. Because that's the way to change. That's the way to salvation at the end of life. It's the way to salvation here in our lives now as we experience God's love. So we're going to attempt to unravel that concept in the coming months together. Let's pray.